The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Story uh, that, that uh, somebody in our auditorium told me recently. I won't tell you where they're sitting in the auditorium, but their names are Tyler and Brooke Miller, okay? And um, <laughs> Tyler told me this story a while back uh, about his neighbors who had this rabbit, and uh, it was like they're... they're cherished rabbit. It was almost like a a son or a daughter. I don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but it was like a son or a daughter to them. And uh, that couple went off on vacation one week. And while they were on vacation, Tyler and Brooke's dog came into their front yard with this rabbit in between its its claws, right? In between his mouth and had blood all over, dried blood all over it. And Tyler and Brooke, Tyler was like, man, we just sort of freaked. We're like, oh my gosh, what do we do? Like, this is their, this is their pet. This is their son, you know? And so in an instant, you know, like in this moment, Tyler was like, uh, Brooke being the one full of integrity that she is and, and being the loving and caring one was like, you know what? Let's just go put it back in the cage and act like nothing happened. <laughs> and so, and so they, they take the, the, the rabbit and they put it back in the cage and, and, um, and they just so happened to be standing in the front yard, Tyler said, when that couple came home and, um, and all of a sudden the, the, the wife, Tyler says, she just explodes in tears. Like she sees the rabbit in this cage. It's got blood all over it. And so Tyler and Brooke look at each other and Tyler's like, okay, we don't know anything. We don't know anything. We don't know anything, right? And so, and so Tyler and Brooke go over to the fence and they're like, hey guys, what's wrong? Is everything okay? And the wife is like, oh my gosh, you would not believe this. Um, before we went on vacation, our rabbit died and somebody dug him up from the backyard and put him back in this cage. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is such a great story. And it would be awesome if it was true, but it's April Fool's today too, by the way. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been fooled before. Anybody pulled an April Fool's joke on you and like, oh my gosh, there's no way I believe that. Like if you know Tyler and Brooke this morning and she's somewhere in here, you probably know one, that definitely is not Brooke to cover it up. Two, you're like, I didn't even know they had a dog, right? And so... And so sometimes, you know, when somebody pulls this April Fool's, you're like, I don't know. I'm doubtful. I'm skeptical, right? You know, sometimes the message of Christianity is the same way, right? Like we hear this story and we're like, I I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that has all of these questions and all of these doubts. And I'm just not sure if I can believe it. Am I the only one that has these questions and doubts? And I I just want to say to you this morning, if you're that person and you showed up on Easter Sunday, and, and you're, you're, you're here maybe just because it's a religious ritual and that's okay, we're glad you're here this morning, but maybe you even showed up and you're like, I have doubts, I have questions, I'm a little bit skeptical about the Easter story. I just wanna say to you, I've never known a Christian that didn't have doubts and questions as well. And maybe you read the Bible and parts of the Bible like, like this idea of the worldwide flood where there was one family and one boat and two animals of every kind and this is the way that God preserved the world, right? Or maybe you read the story about the Red Sea and this body of water parts and two million Israelites walk across dry land and you're like, really? Or maybe you read parts of the Bible where there's difficult doctrines and you come on the doctrine of like hell or you come on the doctrine of like why is there evil in the world? Or maybe you come 
come on parts of the Bible that seem to contradict each other. And you're like, I just have questions. I'm a little bit skeptical and I have some doubts. But maybe this morning, if you're a believer, this may not resonate with you. But for some people who are not believers, and maybe some of us who are, the message of Christianity just seems strange to some people. I don't know if you understand that or not, right? Like this man was born 2,000 years ago of a virgin. He died at the end of his life by being nailed on a cross, and his death brought peace to the entire world, even though there's been tons of violence since then. And at the end of the world, he's going to come back riding on these clouds on a white horse. He's going to gather the faithful. He's going to destroy the unfaithful and he's going to restore the world back to its place that it's supposed to be. Like everybody believes that, right? And maybe you come into Easter Sunday and and maybe one of the hardest things about the message of Christianity to believe is this idea of a resurrection, of a dead man coming back to life. As a pastor, I spent a lot of time in cemeteries. And there's just this thing about dead people who are laid to rest in cemeteries. Like, like they're just stubbornly dead, right? Like they don't come back to life. And this idea of a resurrection, a man dying and coming back to life, it defies human imagination. And maybe you come to Easter Sunday and you're like, you know what, I just have some doubts. And I just have some questions. And maybe for some of you, you're like, you know what? I would really love to believe the message of Easter. I would love to believe the message of Christianity. But to do so, I feel like I need to turn my mind off. And that doesn't seem right. And so my doubts and my questions are going to hold my belief captive. Well, this morning in John chapter 20, Jesus has this story. There's a story about Jesus and this guy where Jesus brings this guy who's doubting. He brings him to belief. And I believe John chapter 20 this morning is helpful to instruct us when we have doubts as well. Um, I want to be clear this morning before we jump into John chapter 20 that Jesus is not going to say to us, suspend your doubts and have no doubts. I want to acknowledge before you this morning as pastor of Story City Church, that's just not possible in this lifetime. But Jesus is going to instruct us on how to deal with those doubts when they come up. So this is the story of a man named Thomas. He's been labeled Doubting Thomas, which is really sort of unfair if you know the scriptures well. Thomas was the only disciple that got labeled by his flaws, right? Like Peter was afraid. He was fearful, but we don't acknowledge Peter as Peter the Petrified, right? Like we don't call him Peter the Pansy, right? He didn't get labeled because of his fears, right? We don't call Luke the Luster. We don't call James the Judgmental, but we call Thomas the Doubter. And this is the story about how he got labeled as a doubter. If you don't remember the story, there's a little backstory to it. And on Easter morning, 2000 years ago, Mary Magdalene, who was one of Jesus's disciples, went to the tomb and she went to the tomb to anoint Jesus's body. And when she got there, she saw that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus's body is not there. And when she sees that Jesus's body is not there, she just assumes the body must have been stolen. So she goes back to this room that's locked where the disciples are hiding in fear because they believe they're the next ones that are going to be crucified. And so they're hiding in fear. And Mary Magdalene goes back to this room and she says, you will not believe Jesus is not there. And immediately two of Jesus's closest disciples, Peter and John, they rush out of the room and they run to the tomb. And John is so crippled by fear, he can't even go into the tomb. But Peter goes in and he finds two things. One, Jesus is not there. Two, his head cloth is wrapped up and it's folded neatly on the bench, which tells us a couple things. One, um, Jesus's body had to have been stolen because what thief comes in, breaks and enters, steals a body and tidies up after himself, right? And two, this must have been a miracle. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so Peter and John go back to the room. 
where everybody's huddled together and they tell the disciples what has happened. But this guy Thomas is not in the room when they tell everybody. He's probably gone out to Stumptown to get some nitro cold brew, right? It's been a long 72 hours. They need some caffeine. And so Thomas is out gathering coffee for everybody. So he doesn't hear the story of Jesus being there, not in the tomb. And he also doesn't hear the story that the disciples narrate that Jesus showed up in the room with them. And so when Thomas gets back, the disciples tell Thomas everything that had happened, including the fact that Jesus showed up in the middle of a locked room. And in verse 25 of John chapter 20, Thomas replies to their story. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and unless I can put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas gets labeled here in John chapter 20 because he's a doubter, but really it's unfair. If you, if you read the record of the gospels, what you actually find is that Thomas is not the only person who doubted. There are other people in the gospel that doubted as well. In fact, there's this guy by the name of John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest prophet of all time. And so John comes along and he's preaching about this promised Messiah. And then after he preaches about this promised Messiah, John gets discouraged because Jesus isn't fulfilling his promises as fast as John would have liked to have believed. And then later on, we hear in the book of Luke chapter seven that John makes this statement. Are you the one that we should look for? Like, are you the one that's been prophesied about or should we look for another person? In other words, John says, did I make a mistake? Like, are you who I thought you were supposed to be? And so John has these doubts. And then we read the story of James, who is Jesus's brother. Jesus's brother, who eventually went on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was one of the first to be martyred for following Jesus. At one point in time, James um, publicly criticizes Jesus. He has doubts. He publicly criticizes Jesus and he accuses him for losing his mind. James had doubts as well. And then we get to Matthew chapter 28 in this extraordinary scene. And Jesus is post-resurrection and now he's literally ascending into heaven. And he's hovering above the disciples on the way to heaven. And the disciples said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now get this. But the second part of that verse says, but some doubted. Can you imagine that? This is post-resurrection. Jesus has made himself known to hundreds of people. He's literally hovering. He's literally levitating in the air above them. And some of the disciples are like, yeah, I'm just not sure yet. Maybe, maybe not. Could be, maybe not. I'm just not sure. I just have some doubts. If we read the gospels correctly, we realize that Thomas is not the only person who doubts in the scriptures. But the point is that he's not the only one that doubted. In fact, when you read the book of John, you realize that, that Thomas's story comes near the end of the book. And the writer of the book of John, whose name is John, tells us the purpose, the reason why I wrote the book of John is to narrate stories to you of people who believed. Why? So that you could also learn to believe as well. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Thomas's story coming here at the end signifies to us, like this is the best example of a person who could not believe, but he learned to believe. And then later on in a couple of verses that we'll get to in just a second, Thomas makes this very bold statement, this very clarifying statement about his belief. And Thomas says, my Lord, my God. 
And Thomas comes to this place where he learns to believe. And so this guy, Doubting Thomas, that we know, actually could be renamed to Overcoming My Doubting Thomas. He comes to this point where he's able to believe in Jesus and who he said he would be. But just before we get there and see how that happened, can I just ask you a question just for a moment? Like, how did Thomas get so stubborn in his beliefs, right? Like, he walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He was present when Jesus performed miracles. He was there the entire time. How did Thomas get to be so stubborn in his beliefs? Well, there's a couple things that I believe. Number one, Jesus shattered every concept and every category that Thomas had about who God was and who he should be and how he should act. And so Thomas had this idea, like a lot of other people in his day who were present with Jesus, who were actually looking for a Messiah, he had this idea that this Messiah would come and be king, right? And he would destroy the enemy and he would um, reward the faithful and reward the home team. And yet Jesus came and he became a friend of Romans. He came and he was a friend of tax collectors. He came and he was a friend of prostitutes. And Thomas looks at this scene and he's like, what Messiah does that? And then especially what Messiah does that and then suffers and dies. Jesus shattered every category that Thomas had about who God was and how he should act. And then the second thing that I believe about Thomas and why Thomas was so stubborn in his belief is that Jesus personally disappointed Thomas. Jesus personally disappointed Thomas. If you know, John chapter 14 It says Thomas was getting close to this belief. He's getting close to belief. In John chapter 14, as he's getting close to belief, then Jesus goes on this rant about being arrested and eventually murdered. And Thomas is humiliated. He's humiliated. And he can just hear the echoes of his friends in his mind. See, I told you not to give up your life and follow this Messiah. And now his friends are being vindicated, right? And on top of all that, Thomas has given up his livelihood. He's given up his job to follow Jesus. And now it's all coming back on him. I believe there's a couple of reasons why Thomas was so stubborn in his belief. But does any of that echo with you this morning? Like, like maybe God is, has acted in a way that, that you thought he should not have acted in your life. Maybe something's happened in your life and you blame God for it and God's disappointed you. Maybe this morning you believe that God should have given you something that he just has not given you. And now you sit here as Thomas did and you have a broken heart and you have a shattered mind. Thomas was a man who was brokenhearted. John chapter 20, he's a man who had a shattered mind. Listen to me this morning. Isn't that the place where doubt seeps in? Isn't that the place where, where when somebody has is, is broken your dreams, isn't that the place where, where your heart's been broken that you just find it the most difficult to believe and the most difficult to trust, right? And so it's in this moment with a broken heart, a shattered mind, that Thomas makes this statement. And it only seems right. Unless I see the scars, I will not believe. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Maybe that's where you are in your, in your doubts and your questions about Jesus and the message of Christianity. Well, the story picks up in verse 26. This is what the scripture says. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was now with them. He completed the Stumptown run and, and, and though the doors were locked, it says Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now, just be real for just a moment. This is sort of an escape room-ish moment, right? <laughs> like, like, like uh, there's these people that are in this locked room and all of a sudden this dead man appears in the middle of them, right? And he says, peace be with you, right? 
Like, I could be honest, if that's me and that's probably you, like, I'm feeling some things in the moment, but I'm probably not feeling, oh, this is the definition of peace, right? Like, I'm feeling some things run down my leg, like, in my mind, I'm feeling these thoughts, like, donde es el baño, like, like, like I'm feeling all that, but I'm not thinking this is peace right now, right? Like, like if you woke up at midnight tonight and I'm sitting on the, the chair beside your bed and I'm like, hey, peace be with you. You're probably not going to say, now this is the definition of peace, right? <laughs> Jesus shows up in the middle of this locked room and he tells him, peace be with you. By the way, there's another sermon here and I debated whether to preach this theme this morning. And that is the fact that between the time that Jesus said peace and the time that the disciples walked out and followed Jesus, what stands in between is the nail scarred hands of Jesus. And that's the only thing that can give you peace this morning, but I can't preach it because I don't have enough time. Verse 27, it says, then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus addressing Thomas. You notice we have no record of Thomas saying, Jesus, I got a couple questions. Jesus addresses Thomas and this is what he says. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put them into my side. Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Doesn't it seem inherent, like if you're a believer this morning, like it seems obvious why Jesus didn't say, hey, Thomas, I just got word from the other disciples. You had some questions. Like if you want to ask me directly, I can answer them now. Like it seems inherent that Jesus didn't take that approach. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you understand that Jesus is omniscient. In other words, he knows everything. We also know that Jesus is omnipresent. In other words, he's present everywhere at all times. He knew Thomas's doubts. He knew Thomas's questions and he addressed them directly without having to hear one question. And when Thomas realized that, Thomas fell prostrate. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Verse 28, he says, my Lord and my God. Any other time in the Bible, when you see this phrase, when one human says it to another human, the human that it's being said to will naturally reply, no, I'm not God. Um, there is only one God. You should worship him alone. Yet Jesus doesn't say that. And that infers to us that Jesus believes that he himself is God. And then verse 29, the scripture says, and then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed and blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, this is a great story, and I love this story. But let's press pause just for a moment, come back to 2018 here in the Colony Theater for Easter. And, and let's, let's be real for just a moment. If you came to Easter Sunday morning and you have doubts, if you're skeptic, if you have questions about the message of Christianity, you maybe even wonder how does the resurrection play into the story of religion and Christianity. And you probably may be thinking the same thing that I've often thought about this passage. And that is this. Well, that's a great story, but this doesn't really help me. I mean, I mean, like if Jesus showed up, right, and he's like, he let me touch his hands, sure, I, I wouldn't have any doubts either, right? Like if on the way home today, Jesus just automatically appears in the back seat. He's like, hey, just so you know, I'm real, and everything I wrote about in the Bible, it's true. Like that would remove all area of doubt in our life, right? But Jesus doesn't show up to us. He shows up to Thomas. And he makes himself known to Thomas, but I think that's a fair question about this passage. But look what happened here. Jesus doesn't answer any of the questions that Thomas had. 
He doesn't say, I, I need you just to get, explain to me what you're thinking because I'm just not seeing it the same way. Like, like, like Thomas, um, he didn't ask Thomas any questions. He immediately, he immediately showed himself to Thomas. He never explained to Thomas why he was crucified. He never explained to Thomas why he didn't do things the way that Thomas thought things should go. He just made himself known. And listen, in that moment, Thomas had a choice, just like we have a choice this morning. Thomas had a choice to suspend those questions and those doubts and embrace what he saw. In other words, the revelation of who Jesus was was more powerful than an explanation of who he should be. And Thomas came to this point where he believed in Jesus and he suspended his doubts. And that may lead you to think this thing, this question, this idea. Well, that's good for Thomas to get a personal visit from Jesus, but why don't I? Like, I've got these questions. I'm, uh, uh, I'm genuinely wanting to know. Thomas got a visit. Why don't I get a visit? Well, the answer to that is very simple because Jesus was appointing Thomas as this apostle. And part of the requirement of being an apostle was that you had to have seen Jesus. But for us, we don't get to see Jesus. The way we hear and acknowledge the story of Jesus is that we hear their story about Jesus. And the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence of their story about Jesus is overwhelming and it's sufficient, as Jesus said, to all those who have ears to hear what had to be said. Now listen to me. But oftentimes when people don't believe the message of the resurrection, when they don't believe the story of Christianity, it's oftentimes not because the evidence of the resurrection is not sufficient, because it is. Oftentimes people don't believe the message of Christianity and the story of the resurrection because there's another reason. There's another motive. There's another doubt. There's something that prevents them from trusting. This guy that coined the term agnostic, his name is Aldous Huxley. He wrote a book called The Brave New World. And in that book, this is what he said. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. He said, and consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. In other words, the man who coined the term agnostic is saying, it's not just the cold, hard facts that convince me. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, Huxley says, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain sense of morality. Frederick Nietzsche said, I cannot believe in a God who wants to be praised all the time. In other words, these two men are saying it's not just the cold, hard facts that will convince me about the message of Christianity. I've got some other motives. I've got some other foundational assumptions about life and how it should go. And those assumptions prevent me from acknowledging the cold, hard facts. And I'm not convinced that it could possibly be true because of all of these other questions that I have. You know, it's possible to be closed off or biased against the resurrection because of other reasons. Do you know that this morning? Bill Gates said, in terms of doing things, I take a fairly scientific approach to why things happen and how they happen. I don't know if there's a God or not. Just in terms of allocation of time resources, he goes on to say, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. You understand this this morning. If Jesus showed up to these men, 
He showed up in person to these men and says, I am who I said I was. And I'm not going to give you an explanation for why things should be in this world, but I'm going to ask you to surrender. I'm going to ask you to submit to who I am, even though uh, what's right and what's wrong may be different from what you believe, even though you may hate it, even though it may offend you, even may you not like it, I'm going to ask you to surrender to me. Listen to me. If that was you, would you surrender? Oftentimes, there's these things that, that come in the way of, of trusting and believing the cold, hard facts. And sometimes what we call a head problem. It's not really a head problem. It's actually a heart problem. It's actually a heart problem, and we don't want to surrender our understandings and our wills. Listen to what Thomas Aquinas, a very old theologian, said. To one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. When Thomas said, my Lord, my God, Thomas was saying, I don't have to understand it all. I don't have to call the shots in my life. Do you understand this? Our minds have this ability. We are prone to turning off any evidence that contradicts what we don't want to believe. One pastor said, the mind will never accept what the heart has already rejected. The mind will never accept what the heart has already rejected. Have you ever considered the evidence for the resurrection? Like the evidence for the resurrection is absolutely overwhelming. Atheists will affirm to it, attest to it. Agnostics will often attest to it. The evidence for the resurrection seems to be overwhelming. And the opposing theories to the resurrection also seem pretty incredible. Here's a few opposing theories I just wanted to posture before you this morning. One of those theories is called the hallucination theory. In other words, the disciples uh, didn't really see Jesus, but because of their pain, because of their suffering, they just thought that they saw Jesus. And I'm sure this can probably happen. I'm sure this is probably a real thing but for um, those people who thought they saw Jesus to record the conversations they had with Jesus and for other people to affirm and to attest to the conversations that were actually had, it seems a bit strange that the disciples were just hallucinating, all of them. There's another theory that's called the willful deception theory. The willful deception theory basically says, in other words, the disciples stole the body and they did so in order to gain some credibility. But listen, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense if you know the story post-resurrection and what happened to the disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. They spent their life. They didn't get power. They didn't get fame. They didn't get rich. Uh, they didn't get prestige. Actually, what they got was they got poor. They got persecuted, and they were eventually martyred. You remember Peter? If you know the story, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter denied knowing Jesus three different times. A man who denies knowing Jesus doesn't eventually say, I want to be crucified upside down because I don't deserve to die in the same manner that my Lord was crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, who eventually went on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was beaten, he was stoned, and he was one of the first to be martyred. Now listen to me. If you came to my sister this morning and you tried to convince her that I was the sinless son of God, right? Like she's gonna be like, yeah, right, right? And she's like, no, he may be incarnate, uh, Satan incarnate, like he came to afflict me, but he's definitely not the sinless son of God. And yet James, the brother of Jesus, came to this point where he worshiped the Lord Jesus and he acknowledged who he was and he was willing to die for that Jesus. Even Anthony Flew, a world-renowned atheist, admitted in a book that he wrote called The Jesus Rise from the Dead, that even in the early church, even in the early church, this idea of the resurrection was prominent. 
I read this morning a quote from a guy named Chuck Olson. He was involved in Watergate years ago. And Chuck Olson wasn't a believer before Watergate went down, but he went to prison and he came to acknowledge Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he said, Watergate taught me that the resurrection was true. Why? Because 12 disciples, 12 disciples said they saw Jesus after the resurrection. And for the next 40 years, they decided to continue to say the same thing about all the way to the point of being beaten, stoned, and martyred. He said, when Watergate happened, 12 of the most powerful people on the planet could not keep a lie for three weeks. You have the willful deception theory. You've got this hallucination theory. Then you've got another one called the legends theory. And by the way, these aren't the only ones. There's a bunch. The legends theory basically says that um, the early disciples thought Jesus was just this good guy. But later on, there was this sort of fringe sect that came along and they added this supernatural bit about Jesus. The problem is the early church and the apostles were in unity about the resurrection of Jesus. They celebrated the resurrection from the very beginning. Paul quotes an early hymn of the church that declared uh, the resurrected son of God in Philippians chapter two. You see, the evidence about the resurrection is overwhelming. It's clear. It's there if you want to believe, but oftentimes when people don't believe, it's almost always for some other reason. There's some other motive. There's some other question. And I want to ask you this morning, if you can't believe and surrender your life to this resurrection story on Easter Sunday, what's the real reason? What's the real reason? To surrender to this story, the God of this story requires some humility. I would say, God, I can't explain some things, but you're God and you can and you know it and I'm gonna choose to accept it. But if you don't approach Jesus and this Easter story with this sense of humility and submission to God and truth, and I just wanna say, you'll never really know the truth about Jesus. You'll never know the truth about Jesus. And if we're honest this morning, I think most of us would say, we don't really want a God. We just want this divine reflection of our own ideals, to make him who we want him to be. Jesus said in John 7, 7, the world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. It's true, we don't wanna agree with Jesus. We don't wanna agree sometimes that our hearts are, are blind and our hearts are arrogant, but Jesus would say to us this morning, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Postmodern philosophy has brought us this idea that our mind will only see what the heart acknowledges. Blaise Pascal has this quote. It says, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. In essence, postmodern philosophy is just echoing. It's rediscovering what Jesus originally taught us. Not everyone will have ears to hear. And those who have ears to hear, let them hear. I want to conclude this morning reflecting on the wounds of Jesus. You see, it wasn't just the facts of the resurrection that convinced Thomas. It wasn't just the facts of the resurrection that changed Thomas's life. Listen to me, church. It was seeing the nail-scarred hands. And Thomas came to this point where he realized he encountered a God who never gave up on him, even though Thomas came to a point where he quit believing. 
By the way, the record of Thomas is that one day he would eventually take the wounds of Jesus in his own body. The Bible tells us that one day when we rise, if we're believers, we'll have what's called a resurrected body. In other words, all of your frailties, all of your diseases, all of the things that are wrong with our bodies will one day be restored and be renewed. But isn't it interesting that Jesus' resurrected body was not renewed? Jesus' resurrected body still had nail-scarred hands. Why do you believe that's so? Why do you believe that's so this morning? That Because God could have healed him. He could have showed up and he could have been healed and, and no signs of being nailed to a brutal cross, but yet God did not heal him. Why do you think that's so? I think that's so this morning because God wants it to be ever before us. He, he wants us to be ever reminded of the nail-scarred hands of the wounds of Jesus this morning. He wants it to be reminded, a reminder to us of Jesus' steadfast love and loyalty. That when people let you down, Jesus will not let you down. When your dreams fail you, Jesus will not disappoint you. He wants you to be reminded this morning that you may not understand everything God is doing in this world, but you can trust God with your life. His wounds show us this morning that there is not another person on planet earth that loves the world, that loves grace, that loves justice, that loves you, that loves me like the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. And Thomas looked at the wounds and he said, my Lord and my God. Can I ask you a question this morning? Have you seen the wounds of Jesus for you? Have you seen the wounds of Jesus for you? I'm not downplaying your questions. I'm not downplaying your, your doubts. I'm not downplaying that there's some things that you may be skeptical about, but listen to me this morning. If you have ears to hear, have you seen the wounds of Jesus for you? The wounds of Jesus will give you the ability to trust God through your doubts. Maybe somebody in your life has wounded you. Maybe somebody's hurt you. Pastor, friend, teacher, parent. The wounds of Jesus remind you that Jesus never will. Maybe you've been used or abused by somebody. Jesus reminds us through his wounds that he was abused for you in your place this morning. Maybe love has failed you, but Jesus never will. You'll never be loved by anyone like Jesus in your dark days. You can hold on to the nail-scarred hands. Do you know what I believe this morning? God's not up in heaven He's not scurrying around wondering, how do I answer their question about whether or not I'm real? He's not wondering around, wondering how, how do I answer their question about whether the Bible is true? He's not wondering, how do I answer whether or not Jesus is actually still alive? I believe the question that he has for you this morning, make this personal, not the person to the right, to the left, to the front, to the back, is do you have the humility? Do you have the humility to bow your heart and surrender to the one who's nailed on the cross for you? Have you seen the wounds of Jesus for you? As you bow your heads, close your eyes, we're gonna be done here in just a moment. Have you felt the wounds of Jesus this morning? 
Maybe you came into an auditorium on an Easter Sunday and maybe it just sort of seemed obligatory to show up at a church on a high religious holiday. Maybe you came this morning with doubts and fears and some skepticism about the message of Christianity. Could I say to you this morning, if you have ears to hear, God loves you. He demonstrated his love for you that while you were still a sinner, he died on the cross for you. And you can trust in that very fact. And Paul goes on to say, if Jesus has not been resurrected, then all of this has been in vain. But the news we have this morning is that the tomb is empty. The grave is no longer full. Jesus has overcome your sin. He's overcome death. And if you would have the humility to surrender your life to him this morning, he will change your life just like he changed doubting Thomas. It's your desire to trust Jesus with your life this morning. The Bible calls it being saved. There's nothing magical or mystical about it. We're not gonna make you stand on the stage, make you say anything you don't wanna say. We're not gonna embarrass you. We simply wanna bring you to this point this morning where you acknowledge who Jesus is and who you are. And if you have ears to hear this morning, you come humbly before God, acknowledging that fact that you are a sinner, yet Christ loved you in your sin and he paid the price for you on the cross. And he proved his infinite love for you. And that very fact of a nail-scarred cross and an empty tomb allows the opportunity for your life to be changed, for you to be saved, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, for you to be justified, a yes or no moment, a watershed moment. This is the moment where you can know your sins are forgiven and you're a child of God. That's your desire this morning. I don't want to do anything magical or mystical, but I just want to invite you into this moment where you can acknowledge before God in your own prayer if you desire and say, God, I am who you say I am. And this morning I acknowledge that I need your sacrifice on the cross for me. Jesus, would you save me this morning? If that's your desire, would you just pray that prayer with Jesus right now? Just pray that prayer with Jesus right now where you are. It doesn't matter to the right, to the front, to the back, to the left. What matters is that you do some business with the Lord. And that's you this morning with every head bowed, every eye closed. It doesn't matter who's around you. That's your desire to trust your life to Jesus. Would you just do me a favor? I'm not going to embarrass you. Nobody looking around. Would you just raise your hand if you just prayed that prayer? Anybody? Have the humility. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise God. Nobody looking around. It doesn't matter. The humility to say yes. Anybody else? Praise God. That's you this morning. Can I just ask you, just very humbly, as soon as the service is over, we'd love for you to stop by the Connect table. Fill out this card at the bottom. It says, I trusted Jesus as my Savior today. And why do we want to know that? Because we believe that the believing life is not a solo flight. It's a community journey. And we want to help you walk with God this morning. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you for this day. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And Jesus, in these last few moments together, may we worship in that thought. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.